And just a reminder, uh, particularly as we come across this passage, a reminder that we as followers of Jesus never move on from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Though we are called to press on to maturity, we think of passages like Hebrews 6 that tell us to move on to maturity, move on from elementary doctrines. So we move on to maturity like uh, putting to death sin, um, a greater understanding of the doctrines that we hold to, uh, pursuing holiness. Uh, But we always come back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our foundation. And so to forget that is to detach yourself from the anchor of the whole purpose and meaning of your life. If you detach yourself from the gospel and um, assume that it is no longer relevant, then of course you have detached yourself from the anchor of the whole purpose and meaning of your life. That our life uh, is centered on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the gospel. Um, And we will unpack that a bit more today. The reason I say that is because John 6, this passage gives us a very um, helpful foundation. Jesus is talking a lot about true and false disciples and really stating what we must do to truly come to him, which is part of the, the essence of the gospel. We must understand the gospel that Jesus Christ had died, has died for our sin um, in our place. He rose again that we would have life in him. And we must truly come to him in the way that he prescribes. And that's what we are going to see in John chapter 6. So I'm going to read out our passage today. And then we'll work our way through it. John 6 from verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, But because you ate your fill of the loaves, do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. This is God's word. In 2011... A man named Vikram Gandhi created a documentary called Kumare. Some of you may have seen it. Vikram Gandhi is an ethnically Indian man who was born and raised in New Jersey in the United States of America. And he was um, naturally a skeptic man when it came to the rise of spiritual gurus that he saw people in the West beginning to follow 
from yoga instructors to people who genuinely claim to have divine knowledge as a guru. And there was masses of people following these new gurus. And Vikram Gandhi was a film producer. And what he decided to do, resulting from his skepticism, was to pretend to be a guru. So he grew his hair out. He wore traditional Indian clothing. He spoke in a, uh, in a sort of accent and spoke in proverbial form. And he attracted a whole host of followers. People genuinely started to follow him. He went under the name of Kumare and he filmed it all, all of the process of these followers coming to him. And through the process, there was masses of followers from people who seemed to have ulterior motives in coming to him, like they were trying to get something out of it. Others uh, were following him simply because they saw the crowds following him and naturally were attracted to other crowds. Others uh, seemed to genuinely think he had supernatural powers. And even after the end of the documentary is him revealing himself to just be a film producer from New Jersey, he puts on his normal accent, and even after that, people still maintain that he had supernatural powers. After he was saying, I don't have any, I'm just a film producer, but he had a certain attractiveness to him. And part of the point of this is that charismatic leaders will always attract a range of followers with all sorts of motives. And the vast majority of us, there's a reason why the Bible refers to us as sheep, particularly the world as sheep who are harassed and helpless without a shepherd, because we love to follow something. We are followers. And often people will follow out of ulterior motives. Other times they will follow simply because they see someone else following someone else and they want to therefore follow. Now, Jesus, more than anyone else, had to experience the wide range of followers coming to him. Masses of followers coming to him because they have seen his ability to provide materially, which we've seen in our passage. Masses of followers who follow him simply because uh, they see other people following him. So they uh, flock to where the crowds are going. And then other people following him because they genuinely see something divine. And as we work our way through chapter six, Jesus is beginning to draw like a line of separation and a line of distinction between true followers and false followers. He's beginning to be more clear on what it means to truly come to him. And this we will see very clearly through chapter six of what it means to truly come to Jesus, how we truly come to Jesus. And then even by the end of chapter six, we will see how people respond to this. We will see that there are many followers who ended up being fake followers. And by the end of chapter six, there are many who leave him. They no longer walk with him after Jesus begins to be explicit on what it means to truly come to him. There are many who say, you know what? I don't want any of this. They are offended at what he is saying and therefore they leave. And Jesus wants this to happen. He wants this to be much clearer to his followers as to what it takes to truly come to him. So in our passage today, we are going to begin this section by looking at what it means to truly come to Jesus. What is required to truly come to Jesus as a follower? Now, as we look in the first few verses from verses 22 to 24, We've got the scene set for us here. This is the crowd, the same crowd 
that witnessed the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. We've just had last week Jesus walking on the water. That's a bit of an, an interlude that's still very much connected to this story. But this crowd is the same crowd who were there witnessing his miraculous provision, witnessing that he could provide abundantly through impossible circumstances. And they are searching for him. And the main point we should see here at the end of verse 24, they are seeking Jesus. In fact, I would say they are vigorously seeking Jesus. They literally travel all across the Sea of Galilee to try and find him. So they are genuinely seeking Jesus with a real vigor to them. And when they finally find him, then look at what we see here in verse 26. So after verse 25, they find him on the other side of the sea. They come to him and they say, Rabbi, when did you come here? And then Jesus answers in verse 26. And he says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So the huge crowd who have indeed demonstrated a real enthusiasm for coming to Jesus. I mean, they are seeking him and they're willing to do it in a costly way. Time is not important to them. They're willing to take as much time as they can to try and find him. They genuinely are seeking him, but Jesus is not pleased at all with their reasons for seeking him. Make no mistake, this is quite a rebuke to them, the way Jesus responds to them. He says, you are simply seeking me because you see me as a useful resource. You've seen that I can provide you with physical bread. You're not seeking me because you saw the sign. You haven't seen. Sure, you saw materially the sign, but you haven't seen what the sign was pointing to. That's not why you're coming to me. You're simply coming to me because you saw that I'm someone who can provide physically. Jesus knows there doesn't have to be any love or honor toward him to simply see him and realize that people can benefit from his presence. That's what's happening here. People see that they can benefit from this presence. I mean, a guy who can feed masses, thousands and thousands of people with a tiny bit of bread, that's worthy of following, but you don't have to have any love for that person to recognize that. That's just a natural desire within our sinful nature. So the first point of our passage today is to look at the wrong type of seeking. Let's understand what is wrong with the people who are genuinely seeking Jesus, but they are doing it with wrong motives. Now, we've already seen this throughout John's gospel. Remember back in chapter two, John records that there were many who trusted in Jesus, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in the hearts of men. He knows what is in their hearts. He knows those who are using him. He knows those who are genuinely coming to him. Jesus will not entrust himself to those who are not genuinely trusting in him. And finally, in chapter six, we get to this point where Jesus demonstrates more of what really is in the hearts of people whom he does not entrust himself to. He is now showing us what is in the hearts of those who seek him with wrong motives. So what is it that is wrong about the reasons as to why these people follow Jesus? I believe quite simply this is that they are treating him as a means to an end. They are treating Jesus as a means to an end. The end is their fleshly desires. They have seen that he is someone that can please their fleshly natural desires. He is a means to that end. 
So Jesus says, you are seeking me simply because you ate your fill of the loaves. So you have your natural desires to be fed. Now you've seen that I'm someone who could be a means to that end because you're going to get hungry again. And that's the reason why you're coming to me, which is not why I have come to this world. Jesus did not come to simply help people benefit physically. Jesus did not come to be useful to your existing life. That's not why Jesus has come. He is not a means to an end. He is the end. He is the goal. This is what he is calling them to. So when he says, do not work for food that perishes, but work for the food that endures to eternal life, this is him saying, I am the bread. He's going to go on to very clearly, explicitly say, I am that bread. I'm the end. I'm the goal. This is their problem. They do not see him as the end. They do not see him as the goal. Their goal is really to please their natural desires and Jesus can make this happen. And boy, is this rampant throughout our day and age where Jesus is seen as a means to an end. Of course, many people wouldn't admit that, but as Jesus talks about false teachers, knowing them by their fruits, I think we can see by the fruits of people's lives that there are many who treat Jesus really as a means to an end. There is a massive difference between trusting in Jesus, which we are called to do, and then trusting in Jesus to provide you with what you want. There's a massive difference between trusting in Jesus and then trusting in Jesus to provide you with what you want. There's a big difference to that. There are multitudes of people who claim to trust in Jesus, yet their trust in him is conditional. Their trust in him is conditional upon them upon him providing them with the job they want. Their trust in him is conditional upon him providing them with the spouse they want. Their trust in him is conditional upon him providing them with the right circumstances for their life. And their trust ends when he does not perform what they want. That's not trust. That's not seeing Jesus as the end. That's seeing him as a means to an end. It's not wrong to, of course, see God as a provider. Indeed, he reveals himself to us as a provider. He provides his son and he provides us with physical resources. But if the problem is, the problem is where your trust in him ends, where he does not appear to be giving you what you want. I've heard it before and it makes uh, the hairs on the back of my neck stand up where people have said they're actually angry at God. They profess to believe in God, but they're angry at him because they're in really difficult circumstances. That person does not have a trust in the Lord. They have simply trusting in him to give them flourishing circumstances. Now we wait. We have a future hope that there will indeed be flourishing circumstances. That's not this life. And there is a deeper flourishing circumstance, if you will, with life in Christ that perseveres through absolutely horrible circumstances that we've already seen in our passage so far. So there is a great difference between trusting in Jesus and trusting in Jesus to simply give you what you want. If you are trusting in Jesus to give you what you want, then you are not submitting to his will. You are requesting that he submits to your will and insofar as he gives you what you want then you'll follow him that's not trusting in jesus that's not what it means to genuinely come to him it's not seeing him as the bread of life 
It's merely trusting in him as someone who appears to have the ability to give you what you want. The moment you find a better person or a better way to get what you want, you'll go follow that. We are called to trust in Jesus, period. Now, a clear implication that we can see from this passage of what we have read so far is that we cannot assume that people are genuinely coming to Jesus, we cannot assume that people are genuinely following Jesus simply because they appear to be seeking him. These people in our passage, this crowd is genuinely seeking Jesus. Like I said, they're willing to travel across the Sea of Galilee to find him, but Jesus is recognizing that they are not truly coming to him. They're not coming to him in the way that he desires. So we likewise cannot assume that people are following Jesus simply because they appear to be seeking him, especially where Jesus has been presented as someone who can satisfy natural desires that everyone has in their sinful state. This is why the seeker-sensitive music is so terrible, because Jesus is presented as someone who is going to be a means to an end, as a means to our comfort, as a means to our physical desires. Where Jesus has been presented in that way, there is no certainty that people are genuinely following Jesus. Everyone wants a better life. From the person who hates God, everyone wants physical resources. Where Jesus has been commodified, where the church has been commodified to present Christianity in that way, you can never be certain that people are genuinely following Jesus. Jesus does not entrust himself to seekers who are merely looking to benefit from his services. Now, this is the wrong type of seeking where Jesus is seen as a means to an end. Let's look now at the right type of seeking. What is required for us to truly come to Jesus? Here's where we can see three primary characteristics in the remainder of our passage of what is required to genuinely come to Jesus. So to genuinely come to Jesus, you must firstly deny yourself. Secondly, you must trust in the Son. And thirdly, you must treasure the Son. Deny yourself, trust in the Son, and treasure the Son. Now, the first aspect of this in self-denial, we're going to look at a bit more of what has gone wrong with the people following Jesus so that we can then work out what is right, what is the right way to come to Jesus. So look from verse 27. From verse 27, as Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Now, Jesus here is trying to turn them away from self centered, self-preserving approaches to him. That's what's happening. He's saying, don't simply follow bread. Don't seek for bread that perishes. Work rather for bread that endures to eternal life. He is turning them away from self-centeredness and self-preservation. We see in verse 28 that they are still plagued with the wrong approach because they completely miss the thrust of what Jesus is saying. Look at what happens in verse 28. They say, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? They completely missed the point. Jesus is calling them to stop looking for temporary physical solutions that are there to preserve their existing life. 
They should rather look for the bread that endures to eternal life. But they miss the point. They say, well, what must we do? They believe that they have the ability in themselves to do something, to do these works of God. And Jesus is saying, you've missed the point. Don't work for that. They simply focus in on the idea of working for something, something that they can do. And this is a self-centered and self-preserving response. Think about it. Their mindset is, well, we've got a problem. The problem is this man is telling us that we shouldn't work for bread that perishes. We should work for bread that endures to eternal life. We've got a problem. Let's find the easiest solution according to our terms so that we can save ourselves. So man, just tell us what we need to do to do the works of God and we'll do it. We'll do it. They believe there is something within themselves that has the ability to do this. It's a self preserving approach. They are clinging to their lives. Their first problem that they had was a lack of resources, as everyone has. We need bread. They've found a solution. Great. There's a man who can provide masses of resources. But now they have a second problem. This man who can provide masses of resources is now telling us that we have to do something to continue getting these resources. So their basic response is just tell us what we need to do so we can keep getting your provision to keep our lives. Just tell us what we need to do. It's the wrong approach altogether. And Jesus makes this very clear by saying, you can't do anything. This is implicit in the fact that he says, here's the work of God. Believe in the one whom he has sent. That's the work to have faith. Now we'll get to that in our second point here to trust in the son. But firstly, let's stay on this train of looking at their self-preservation and how we are required to deny ourselves. So Jesus's answer is not to work for bread that perishes. And if you want to do the works of God, he says, must believe in him who he has sent, which implicit in this is you can't do anything to earn this bread. You can't do anything to earn this bread that Jesus is offering. There is nothing in our lives worthy of this bread. And I really believe this is their problem. They think there is some ability within themselves to achieve this bread. That's why they say, well, what work should we do? They fail to realize there is nothing we can do. We must simply bow before this man. They think they can do something from their existing lives to work towards God and therefore their approach is self-preserving. And you can tell that their approach is self-preserving as we read on after Jesus says that they must believe in him. What is their response in verse 30? They say, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? You can tell this is self-preserving because they just deflect. Jesus tells them to believe in him. Now, they've already seen signs, but their response is almost to deflect from them and say, well, what sign are you going to do? What more are you going to do so that we can believe? Almost treating him like a common magician. It's a classic self-preserving response to deflect. I don't know if you've ever had that before where you are uh, threatened, you feel threatened in yourself and you feel anxious. And therefore, the easiest way is just to deflect and say, well, what about that thing that you did? That's the response that's going on here. They are trying to cling to their lives, but really they must deny themselves. So here's where we see the first aspect of what is required to truly come to Jesus. 
We must deny ourselves. To truly come to Jesus, you must deny any claim you have to approach him with any sense of worth. To truly come to Jesus, you must deny any claims you have to approach him with any sense of worth. You must forsake your life because there is no ability within it to do the works of God. The bread that endures to eternal life is one that can only be received by abandoning all other bread that perishes and our lives are akin to bread that perishes. Let me just restate that. To truly come to Jesus, you must completely deny any claims you have to rightly approach him. You must deny any sense of worth within you to come to Jesus. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. Jesus is very clear in this. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life by realizing that there is nothing within you that you bring to the table, then you will find it. And I think we all here are probably very aware of this, but I think this is part of the central reality of the gospel that we must come back to again and again because self-centeredness and self-preservation constantly creeps its way in where we begin to think that the way that we can approach God is because of our superior knowledge of these wonderful doctrines or whatever it may be, because of all of the wonderful charitable deeds we have done. The only way we can ever approach our God is by claiming the righteousness that belongs to Christ, by completely denying ourselves and looking to Jesus. We take up the life that Jesus gives. In denying oneself, you take up the life that Jesus gives. In denying yourself, you abandon the bread that perishes to receive bread that endures to eternal life. Now, that's the first point, self-denial. How do we receive this life? This is the second point of trusting in the Son. Trusting in the Son. This is where Jesus says, here's the work of God that you must do. Verse 29, believe in him whom he has sent. So this is the work of God to have faith, to trust in Jesus Christ. And this is the great leveler of the gospel. This is the wonderfully comforting leveler where we are absolutely humiliated because the reality of this is that we do not do anything to receive this eternal life. We cannot do anything to earn God's favor. This is the great leveler because it strips all humanity back to the same level. Everyone is condemned in their sinful state. No one can do anything to work towards God. Everyone is under God's wrath. All of our righteous deeds from the greatest humanitarian works ever done in the world, done apart from Christ, are as filthy rags. They are filthy rags before a holy God because they are stained by sin. Now, a lot of people stumble at this because you naturally think, well, it seems a bit rich to compare like a Mother Teresa figure to Hitler or Stalin when you say everyone is at the same level. But see, by worldly standards, 
Indeed, there is quite a difference between a Mother Teresa figure and a Hitler or a Stalin. By worldly standards, it's kind of like thinking of the distance between Canberra and Darwin. That's 4,000 kilometers. That's a long way. It's a long way from Canberra to Darwin. So you can very clearly see a big difference in that. But by God's standards, that distance between the person in Canberra, 4,000 kilometers away to Darwin, by God's standards, it is like comparing those two people to the 150 million kilometers to the sun. Now, sure, by world standards, the distance between Canberra to Darwin is a lot. But then when you compare the distance of those two people to the distance of the sun, 150 million kilometers away, all of a sudden, that 4,000 kilometer distance is negligible. It's nothing. And this is the same by God's standards. If we are viewing purely in human terms, sure, we can see that some people do better things than someone else who does horrible things. But the reality is that we don't measure things by world standards. We measure things by God's standards. And God is a holy God who is so high above us that everyone else from the best sinner to the worst sinner is so imaginably, unimaginably far beyond that level. The gospel reminds us that we are all stuck in sin and condemned from the best sinner to the worst sinner. All have fallen short. We have all offended God with our rebellion against him. We all walk in faithlessness to him, even thinking about the way that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength. And how much time do we invest in honoring him in our day-to-day lives, even as those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. We all fall so far short of the glory of God. And here is why we are simply required to trust in Jesus, why we are simply required to believe in him. Because to trust in the Son is to trust that something has been done in your place to solve that problem. That's what we are trusting in. Something has been done on a cosmic level to solve that problem of that great gap between you and God. This is what we are trusting in. So we don't simply trust that the Father has sent the Son. We trust in why the Father has sent the Son. The Father did not send the Son to be a useful resource for us to get a better life. The Father did not send the Son to be a means to an end for our existing lives like these people are treating him, or like so many people now are portraying Jesus as this genie-like figure who can give you a better life. The Father did not send the Son for that purpose. The Father sent the Son to be the substitutionary sacrifice for our sin so that God would be glorified in his judgment of sin as our sin is placed upon Jesus Christ and he would be glorified in him pardoning and giving mercy to sinners like you and me because our punishment is placed upon Christ and dealt with there in the cross. So he remains just and the one who justifies the ungodly. If Jesus is still seen as being a useful resource or a means to an end, then that doesn't deal with the issue of our sin against a holy God. The fundamental purpose of the Father sending the Son was to deal with that sin issue, to deal with that huge separation between us and God. The fact that the Son is the one 
whom the Father has sent, as Jesus is telling them here, you must believe in me, whom the Father has sent. The Father has sent the Son to save us from the condemnation that our old life had brought upon us and then to bring us into new life in him. Now, this is implicit in verse 27, which I skipped over the end of verse 27. Notice where Jesus says, For on him God the Father has set his seal. This is a, uh, a wonderful reality. Jesus says, for on me, the Father has set his seal. The idea of seal here is the idea of authentication. It's the idea of something that is genuine. If a king sealed a document, then they were testifying, they were attesting to the fact that this is an authentic kingly document. The Father sends the Son as His representative, as God among us. And that's why the Son is sealed. It is the idea of guarantee. The Father saying, this is my Son. He is guaranteed, authenticated as His representative, as God among us in the flesh. So everything the Son communicates is consistent with the Father. So when we believe in the Son... We are trusting him as God in the flesh, as the one whom God the Father had attested to. We are seeing Jesus as the Son, the true Son, God of very God, and we are trusting in him. And the very same word for sealed, for the way the Father has sealed the Son, is then used of us. Paul uses this in Ephesians 1, where he says, You, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. He's saying you were sealed just as the father has set his seal upon the son to say he is authenticated, he is genuine. I'm attesting to the fact that he is God in the flesh. We, we, when we believe upon the Lord Jesus, receive that seal. The father sets his seal upon us and authenticates us as children, as genuine children, as genuine sons and daughters. And why do we receive such a seal and guarantee? Because in believing in the Son, we are denying ourselves, which means we are turning away from that life. We are turning away from our life of sin, and we are taking up the life of Christ. We are receiving Christ's righteousness. That's why we have the seal. That's why the Father can look upon you in all of your sinfulness and all of your wretchedness and set his seal upon you and say, I attest he is a genuine son of God, a genuine child of God, because he has denied himself. He has been brought to life. He has taken up the life of Jesus Christ and that righteousness that is Christ becomes our very own. And the father looks upon you and says, this is my child. I set my seal upon him, guaranteed by the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. What a beautiful comfort. What a wonderful comfort for us. What assurance we can have in all of our lives, knowing that that same seal, that same seal of authentication, that same seal of saying a genuine child of God is set upon us so that regardless of our circumstances, regardless of how we are living in this time, for those who have truly come to Jesus, that seal has been placed upon you. That seal never goes away. God the Father never takes his seal from God the Son. He never takes his seal away from his children. Sealed, 
guaranteed to acquire that inheritance. That is our guarantee. We have the righteousness of Christ. That is what we are trusting in. We are not simply trusting that the Father has sent the Son. We are trusting in why the Father has sent the Son, namely to be the substitutionary sacrifice, to live the life that we ought to have lived but could not, to die our death and therefore we receive His righteousness and we are sealed and authenticated as sons and daughters of God. Finally, we must treasure the Son. So to truly come to Jesus, we must deny ourselves. We must believe in Him as God's Son sent to save us from our sin and then we must treasure the Son. This becomes the evidence that we have believed, that we treasure Christ above everything else. This is part of, I believe, that the fundamental reality of those who've truly come to Jesus, who've truly been born of the Spirit, is that desires will change. It's a really dangerous thing if someone's desires before they came to the Lord remain exactly the same after they come to the Lord. That shows that Jesus is really just a means to an end. Our desires should change. We ought to desire Christ. We ought to treasure Him. So from verse 30, we have this question of the crowd. They say, remember, this is a deflection. They say, well, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? They are trying to domesticate Jesus, to just perform signs and wonders according to their desires. And so they go on to say, well, our Father... Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they reference what happened under Moses when God gave the manna from heaven. And now Jesus's point here in verses 32 to 33 is what will then lead to the famous I am statement of verse 35, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. So Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father. Jesus is drawing their attention away from a Moses-like figure who perhaps they thought could be their political redeemer. He's drawing their attention away from that and says, my father is the one who gives the true bread from heaven and this is the true bread. The true bread is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, which is Jesus saying, that's me. I'm the bread of life. I am the portion. I am your nourishment. I'm the whole point of this life. If you're looking for physical bread, if you're looking for me to just provide physical things and be useful for you as someone who could provide you with resources, then you're missing the point. That's a temporary superficial solution to preserve your life rather than an eternal solution to men's fundamental issue. It's like putting a band-aid over a 15-inch cut through someone's stomach. It's a ridiculous thing. It doesn't deal with the issue of sin. That's not what you should be looking for. So to truly come to Jesus, we must treasure him as the provision. Life is found in him. We must be constantly working toward the goal of realizing what the psalmist spoke of in Psalm 73 when he said, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. That's what Christ has come to fulfill, that we would treasure him, that we would be like the man in the parable of Matthew 13, where he finds the treasure buried in the field. So he goes and in his joy, he sells everything that he had to purchase that field. Everything is worthy of that 
treasure. Christ is the treasure. This is the major difference between the approach of the crowd that Jesus resists and then a right approach to Jesus that he welcomes. An approach to him, an approach to Jesus that does not treasure him as the ultimate provision is always looking for him as a means to an end. They're always looking for something else. Jesus can get them that holiday. Jesus can get them that new job. They're always looking for him as a means to an end. And we live in a time where there are countless temptations. There are masses. This has always been a problem for humanity. But we live in a time where we are just overly saturated with these temptations to see Jesus as a means to an end. Because we live in a world full of resources that are conditioning us to make us covet these things. We live in a media-saturated age where we are conditioned to desire temporary solutions, that new product, that new experience. A world full of material goods which makes it much harder to treasure Christ as the provision. I believe we are living quite consistently with the Laodicean complex, which was where you remember the seventh church in Revelation 2 and 3, and Laodicea had got to this point where they literally said, we have acquired wealth, we have prospered, and we have need of nothing. Is that not quite a description for our day and age? We have acquired wealth. How often do you hear someone saying, I'm blessed because of all of these material circumstances? There is no desperation for Christ. There is no hunger for the Lord. And the problem with the Laodicean church and the problem with our complex is that we feel that we have acquired all of these resources. We have acquired wealth. We have prospered. We have need of nothing. And what does Jesus say to that church whom he is not in fellowship with? He says, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's quite an indictment. You are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You who think you are so prosperous, you who think you are full of resources, you're miserable. You're detestable to me. I'm not even in your fellowship. I'm outside. If you were in me, I would spit you out. Jesus did not come to give us a better life physically now so that we would feel as though we have prospered and have need of nothing, so that we would be able to sit there in our nice house, blessed with all these lovely circumstances. Jesus did not come to give that. He came to be our life, so we would realize our constant need for him as the source of life. That is what he came to be. In him is life and life abundantly. He came to be the ultimate treasure whereby our spiritual taste buds are drawn to communion with him and his people and they are led to this place where it is very unappetizing for communion with the world and its people. That's what Christ came to be, to grip our affections so they would be entirely for him and whatever he guides them to. To truly come to Jesus is to have an increasing appetite for treasuring Christ and a decreasing appetite for treasuring the world. I believe this is one of the, the fundamental realities of our day where we are so apathetic that the non-negotiable for coming to Jesus is to treasure him, to see him as the, the whole purpose of life, to treasure him. We should be moved with these affections toward him. So we must deny ourselves. We must trust in the Son 
and we must treasure the Son. This is what is required to genuinely come to Jesus Christ. And remember that all of this is nothing that we have an ability to do in and of ourselves. There is no work that we can do toward this. This must be a work of the Spirit within us, which is a wonderfully comforting thing to do, that as we press on in this life, looking to to that end, to treasuring Christ, to trusting in Him, we know it will be His work within us to produce these affections. It'll be His work within us to produce that desire for holiness, that increased appetite for Him rather than the world. And we get the opportunity now for the however many years Christ gives us, however many years we have as this church to constantly stir one another on to that end, that we would deny ourselves, we would live lives of self-denial, we would trust in the Son, we would take Him at His word, we would treasure the Son, we would be moved with affections toward Him.